Regency Romance Queen Stephanie Lawrence has been in the top 100 Romance of the Year lists many times over. She's one of the most successful and popular romance novelists of all time, with over 70 works of historical romance, including 40 New York Times bestsellers. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and on Binge Reading Today, Stephanie talks about switching from cancer research to romance and the changing tastes of romance readers. As usual, we've got free books to give away. This week it's a range of historic adventures. You can check them out on the show notes for this episode on thejoysofbingereading.com. And don't forget, you can get exclusive bonus content like hearing Stephanie's answers to the five quickfire questions by becoming a Binge Reading on Patreon supporter. For the cost of less than a cup of coffee a month, you can get special bonus content, including a new one starting next month, Encore, where authors who've already been on the podcast talk about their latest book. It's a shorter episode, quick to get through and exclusive to Patreon. But now, here's Stephanie. Hello there, Stephanie, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Look, I'm really in awe of having the chance to talk to you because you are one of the legends of romance publishing. I mean, you've been working since the early 90s. You've got 80, more than 80 books now published and many, many accolades, including landing in the top 100 romances of the year many times and an international army of fans. So tell me a little bit about how you got into this career and give us a little bit of a helicopter view of all of those years. Okay, well, I really got into writing romances because I literally ran out of Regency romances to read. At that time, back in the early, well, late 80s, actually, it was 89, I used to read Regency romances because I was working as a scientist and writing scientific grants and reviewing scientific grants and papers and stuff like that. It was all very, very dry, you can imagine. So I like to be able to read at night. After I put the kids to sleep, I would read. and. At that time in Australia, there was only two Regency romances brought in a month by Mills and Boone, and that was nowhere near enough. I had already gone through a lot of the, the libraries and so on and what, what Regency romances they stopped. And so in order to sort of keep myself occupied, as it were, I started writing one. And I'm, I sort of really assumed that I would never get to the end because, I mean, you know how pro you start projects and I always have projects lying around for literally years, in, incomplete. But lo and behold, I found that because I wanted to find out what happened, I got to the end of the book. So I actually wrote a book. And so I read it over again and I thought, well, this is not bad. And so I... Um, started to write around to find out where to send it. And actually it was my mother who told me, 
oh, you send it here. And she pointed to the back of a Mills and Boone romance and said, you know, where well, you could send it to them. So I did. And uh, they came back and they said, oh, well, there's this one is, you know, there's this and this and this that's not quite right. And I said, oh, I'll, I'll, let me have a try, try fixing it. And so they let me fix it. And that was my first book. So that's how it all started off. And then I just, I just continued to sort of write more or less to, as I said, amuse myself more than anything. And uh, they kept taking the books. And then when I, in 93, I decided to retire from science, not, not because of the writing or in anything or because I thought I'd have a life writing, but because it was just getting too stressful. And so I did retire from science. And then, of course, it was a bit like, you know, you open a door and you have extra time. What are you going to do with it? I just kept writing and I switched to writing for the American market, which is a little bit different. Um, their books are longer and it enabled me to, if you like, write a bigger story. And uh, so that's what I did. And I just kept writing. I, I got into the American market in 1996. I first sold there. And subsequently, I just sold all my books to the Americans and I've continued on doing that ever since. And uh, I've generally written about two a year, but occasionally that goes up to three. And sometimes it's been four, <laughs> which was a lot. But those were some of the quartets that I did, which helped to be writing them very you know, quickly, one after the other after the other, because it was a continuous storyline. So I've just generally had fun writing and I've made a lot of friends in the States because I used to travel there at least once, uh, sometimes twice a year for either the conferences or also for retreats or book tours for a while when book tours were a thing. Yeah, so that's been how it all came about and how it all evolved. That's remarkable. Just Taking you back to that comment about there only being two Regencies released a month at that time, has the taste for Regency grown in this last, you know, couple of decades? Did that reflect the level of interest that there was in Regency romances at that time? No, actually. I would have said over the last two decades, the interest in historical Regencies may have gone up and down a little, but it's actually stayed pretty constant. It was always there. But it was Australian publishers who didn't think there was a market. So yeah. they didn't supply it. And what they didn't really realise was that instead we were getting supplied by the Americans. The American market was reasonably developed and developed more subsequently. But I don't believe that the readership really has changed in breadth and depth all that much over the entire period. They've maybe switched from this author to that author to something else and back and, and around a bit. And like most genre fiction readers, they don't just read Regency romances. Some do, but a lot of others just read more widely. But it's usually genre fiction. Yes. And, and the other yeah. thing that's very interesting is this particular niche that Regency has in the romance market. I mean, there are lots of other periods that you'd think would warrant equal sort of interest. Like I think of the Gilded Age New York. That's yes. coming through a little bit now, but 
Regency just fascinates people, doesn't it? Why do you think that is? I've always thought it was actually because um, of the peculiar, you know, when you actually sort of got deeply into it, yes, there's all the carriages and the balls and the ball gowns and the this, that. There's a lot of colour in it, which is different to now. So that is a, an attractive thing, I think, and it's, it's actually very visually colourful which helps when you're writing and you can make it exciting, adventurous, quite dramatic. But underneath it all is the fact that at that time socially, uh, in the upper echelons of society, there was this um, a time when you could actually start to marry for love and they Uh didn't. That particular band of society didn't prior to, say, 1800. But through the sort of the Romantic movement, which was very late uh, 1700s, and in through the Napoleonic uh, Wars and so on, there came this actual questioning of marrying for love instead of just marrying for dynastic purposes or for convenience or, you know, whatever, but not for love. Love was actually not a criteria for marriage in that band of society prior to about then. And so it means that, you know, the females in particular can actually make a decision. Do they want to marry for love? Do they want to marry not for love? Do they want to marry at all? Because, again, if you're dealing with the upper echelons, then the women didn't have to marry. It was expected, but if they really, really wanted to dig in their heels, they generally could not marry and go and do something else uh, with their lives. So, you know, and that is really the same questions that women of today or certainly the last few decades have also had to face or, you know, what do I do with my life? I actually have a choice. So I think that echo has always made that time period particularly useful, whereas it's less so in the Victorian era where I'm now writing. And it's harder to generate that sort of uh, a resonance with the modern time with modern times that's a fascinating answer and it's one that I'd never ever really thought about so there was an evolution because obviously the Victorians are after the Regency so that feeling of that that little burst of freedom so to speak gets squashed a bit in the Victorian age yeah it does exactly that's right and so you know the Regency and the early post-regency, like the 1830s, for instance, before Victoria came to the throne, and even just after, before she really had an impact and Victorian society evolved. Yeah, that sort of band of time between, say, 1805 to about early 1840s has a different feel to it socially when it comes to love and marriage in in the aristocracy. Wow, that's fascinating. Look, over this wonderful body of work, you've got a number of series, but one name stands out and that's the Sinsters. More than half of your books are related to that particular family. And the most recent one, the one we must talk about today, is Friends, Foes and Lovers. That's number 10. And this is like the next generation of Sinsters. You've had a lot of books, 20 books with the first generation. 
this is the next generation down. So tell us about the differences. Actually, it feeds in wonderfully to your explanation about the Regency and Victorians. How is it different to do the two books because they're in different generations? Well, yeah, there definitely is a distinctly different feel and I've sort of, I've explored to some extent the in order to find, you know, the the sort of, if you like, the opening for a romance, then particularly from the woman's point of view, because I tend to write very strong female characters, I've had to look more deeply into other things for the situations where a woman would be more able to, as I said, face those questions. And that's, for instance, in Friends, Foes and Lovers, I have a what is essentially a runaway heiress who has taken refuge in a very eccentric uh, country estate, an estate that was run by very eccentric o- older women who were one of whom was a, a widow and the other of well, both of them actually were widows. When they die, she remains as the chatelaine of the estate. Sinster is the one who inherits the estate a sense to mail. And so, you know, it, it's like that searching. And the next book after that, which is coming out in the middle of the year, the woman is running a steel mill in Sheffield. You know, so I've had to sort of go out further in society rather than just staying in sort of the London ballrooms and, you know, the social circles of London. I've had to really go out and uh, find different areas in order to actually, you know, evolve a really more interesting type of romance. Yes, and this one, Friends, Foes and Lovers, is set in Nottinghamshire, isn't it, towards the north of the country, and she is Scottish in her um, family relationships. So I did wonder if that also helped to free it up a little bit from that London-ton sort of situation. Exactly, that's right. And you're you're right, I tend to now, because I'm going out into the, as I said, into society, some of the women, although they may be well-born, they're not your typical London miss. The one I'm writing now is very funny because she is a London miss, but she's taken a bit of a different tack. So, you know, she's she's actually very outrageous when she's in London and she's very much a, a country um, a managing a big, a big estate when she's at home. So, yeah, it's sort of, you know, as I said, I have to keep looking for these unusual situations or creating this sort of situation where I can actually have a very strong female character. Yes, in, in Friends, Foes and Lovers, there's a, a community of artisans that revolve around the estate. So, I mean, in our modern day terms, and they talk about it this way too, they have multiple streams of income because they have um, things apart. In those days, the estates were starting to struggle a little bit for their income. And so they've got all these extra things on the side. They've got a furniture making, apothecary medicines, all sorts of things going on to support the farm. And you have a lot of fascinating detail about those various enterprises. And my mind boggled a bit about how you got all the research for that because it goes into quite a bit of detail about some of those extra enterprises. Is this stuff that you mainly collected over the years or did you have to do a lot of extra research? Some of it was stuff that I knew 
from my, from as you said, my own sort of eclectic interests over the years. As a writer, you tend to start from you know, right from the beginning, really, even before. You know, you're collecting little bits of information that you slot away, and you may never use them, but they're there. And but the rest of it was a lot of fun research, I must admit. Uh, the basket weaving, in particular, which I did not know much about. And I was, you know, you watch YouTube videos. Oh, I, I love YouTube. I love Wikipedia, you know. And, yes, I, I do tend to spend quite a bit of time going into those sorts of details, even though they may be only like all up maybe two pages in a book, but they put a lot of authenticity into the work that this is actually all real, all that was that was described over the basket weaving, which was quite extensive, that was real. The furniture making also I had already known a bit about because I'm always interested in antique furniture. <laughs> you know, yeah, so uh, things like that and sculpting, yes, I did a bit of research on that as well. So, so is the way that men and women interact in this period with the next generation very different from how their parents interacted. I mean, you've got, you set it up beautifully at the beginning with this very capable woman steward with this mysterious past that at the beginning he has no, I, she doesn't, he doesn't realise her class, although he he quickly starts to realise that she isn't quite what she presents herself as. She's hoping like anything that he's just going to satisfy himself that the place is running smoothly and then high back to London and leave them to get on with it. And at the beginning, she's a bit concerned that he takes such an interest in everything. And so you've got that classic situation of a bit of conflict at the beginning of them wanting different things. How does that play out on the wider field of male-woman relations in this time? That's probably a reasonable, you know, as as you say, this is now pretty much edging into mid-Victorian Yes. Um, and it does seem to be, yes, that men and women lived very separate lives, far more so, I think, than in the Regency, for instance, where um, certainly, as I said, I tend to write about the aristocracy or certainly wealthy people, that the males did not so much interest themselves in what we might call uh, work of any sort. And that's sort of what what uh, the hero here in in Friends, Foes, and Lovers is also addressing. He doesn't have any really deep interest in anything, whereas his brothers and sisters and so on they all have something that they're actually doing with their life, a purpose in their life. And this is, I think, what has changed by the time you get into the Victorian Victorian era. I find that having a purpose in life, particularly for the men, is has become more clear that they really need to have something else, not just sitting at home counting the investments coming in. You know, that's not quite the same. They could be interested in investments and in actually investing in companies and so on. That would be acceptable. But just sitting at home being, a, you know, being nothing and using the money doesn't work anymore for them. They can't spend all their time riding their, their estates and really not contributing to the wider society anymore. Yeah. Uh, so that has changed. And, of course, the women always have that they're, you know, that they have also 
a role to play, but I think women always did have a role to play because, of course, they always managed the household or they managed the family, they managed this and that. So for the woman, it's not such a big change, but for the men, I think it is, it has been. And therefore, they're not necessarily spending all their time together. Yes. Do you think that the expectations of romance readers have changed over the time that you've been writing? Some yes and some no because I still find that there's the same older readership that was always there. I don't mean older in terms of age so much as as the people who were heavily into romance in the 1990s they're still the same and some of them might have been quite young in the 1990s so they're still around so that that group is still coming through but there is a newer group and because I still get people who've only just started on my books most of them are really quite sort of they're they're interested you know it may be their first romance or something that they've ever read and a lot of them are still oh oh this is what it's all about. Oh, I never knew, you know. And so you you sort of get that newness of people who are coming to them. And what they're getting out of it, I think, is more the, not just the romance, but the adventure or the, you know, the other thing that's in there. Yes. Um, so I, I've, all, all my books have some other thing. There are very few books of mine that are solely about the relationship. Yes. I think there's one, maybe two. Two, there's two. Even the second one doesn't, isn't, also has something else in it. But there's usually some other major plot line running through it. So I think because of that, my books sort of are still spanning the, the reader expectations. We're taking a short break and we'll be back with Stephanie very soon. Sadie's Vow is a new historical mystery from Jenny Wheeler, set as the others are in 1870s California, published next month in June, and it's on pre-order at a special launch price at all of the ebook stores now. The first in a new trilogy with engrossing characters, twisty suspense, and a heart of romance that are typical of Jenny's historical mysteries. Pre-order it now from Jenny's books website, JennyWheeler.biz. That's B-I-Z. Now we're back with Stephanie Lawrence. Look, I did notice when I was looking through your backlist, you've got a recent series called The Legend of Nimue Hall, and yep. it's been published with some other authors as well. And okay. it looked to me like you might be setting up one of those little publishing houses where you mentor or encourage other authors. I just wondered what that was about. No, that's, that's not actually the case. But what is the case is um, I've had a very, very long friendship with, in particular, five other American authors, uh, romance authors. And we've been running little retreats once a year, just the six of us, we get together and we take off for the coast of Oregon. We that's That just happens to be the place we've decided to all come to because it's easy for the others to get to and it's not too hard for me either. And uh, we spend a week and in that week we actually write. And so we do brainstorming in person, which is lovely, and we also all through the day we write and we brainstorm at night. And this idea just was sparked at one of our retreats and the next year we 
worked on it a bit more and sorted it out and decided, okay, we'll each of us will write in a different time period about the guardians of Nimue Hall. So it was like a collective brainwave that gave rise to this. It was literally us sitting around in a, you know, a very comfortable lounge room with the Pacific Ocean, you know, crashing in the background. And we came up with this and it just evolved and different ones of us put in different bits and then we each chose the time period and wrote in that. And I ended up with the first, which was the Georgian, and it went on from there. So So each of you chose a period that you don't normally write in. Was that how it happened? No, no, because Susie Enoch was Regency and I think Karen Hawkins was the next one after that, which was also later Regency. And But Victoria Alexander chose, she was quite a way later, so it was... I think hers was 1880, yes, but she had started writing in that period herself at that time. And, yeah, so it was all, and, yeah, we all, we all sort of spread out in the time period and because I had written The Promise in a Kiss was also Georgian and so I wrote in that time period because that wasn't a time period the others were very familiar with but and we also wanted me to start <laughs> so <laughs> so you indie published this did you did it as a collector yes between, yeah. between the six of us we each published our own but we put it under the banner uh-huh. and uh, we we haven't finished that I think there there might still be more to come on Nimue Hall I just don't know yet um, yes Yes, it's not it's not closed off. So that p- opportunity to get together obviously has been a little restrained by the pandemic. Yes, unfortunately, we've missed two years now, but we hope this year we'll be back because we usually gather in November. So we're hoping that this November we'll be able to do it again. Yeah, that's great. I wondered with your very intense scientific background, and you were in cancer research as well, whether this last couple of years, observing from afar what's been happening with the pandemic. If you had any little sort of pangs of, oh, I'd love to be in that field still because there's so much going on. No, quite the opposite. I was very (laughs) glad not to have been in that field. Um, I think that the pressures must have been significant. And I mean, I must admit, having worked in pathology labs and in fact developed pathology tests myself, I really take my hat off to the people who were running those labs it was that must have just been so so challenging yeah so uh, I've just been and I mean it is useful because of course I can and my husband's also in science so both of us can analyze all the data that comes out in possibly rather a more you know detailed way than most people but so that does sort of feed into things and you have been doing that, uh, yeah, What was that? You have been doing that? Oh, yes, yes. Mm. Absolutely. In this latest wave, I, I, as always, I've got, I've got a graph going that I, I chart the, the relevant figures every day just to convince myself that, yes, all is going as it should, which it is. So that's good. Yeah, that's wonderful. Look, looking a little at your wider career, is there, is there one thing that you might have done that you'd credit with being, quotes, the secret of your success? What would it be? Secret of my success? I would have to say probably learning to plot. <laughs> 
which I did not do for the first, I don't know how many books, but after about this, yeah, after the second book for the Americans, which would have been book number 10 by then, that stage, I realised that there had to be an easier way. <laughs> you know, I, I, had, I can obviously write stories, but surely I can be less, be more efficient, if you like, because, you know, the idea of writing a lot of stuff and then going back over it and rewriting it again and then rewriting it again and et cetera, et cetera, was it, it wasn't a very efficient process at all. And so I gradually over the years trained myself using, you know, other, other people's different sort of plans, if you like. I gradually sort of taught myself how to plot for me. And I think that is one of the things that allowed me to keep writing for so long. Yes. You know, and, and enjoying it still, that I've actually slimmed the whole process down so that I'm a lot more in control and I don't do a lot of stuff that is thrown out in the in the wider scheme of things, you know, getting to yes. the book. Yeah. That book number 10 sounds like it might be significant because I did read somewhere you quoted as saying that your advice to beginner writers was not to expect anything to happen until they'd pretty well got to book book six and maybe even to book 10. Yes, that's right. When you actually look back at people's careers who have had a long career in writing, not people who were just flashes in the pan, most people who have had long careers in writing and, and been steady writers for decades, they have almost always written. I mean, you may have your first book published, but that doesn't mean it's going to sort of really turn anything on. By the time you get to book 10, you have a lot better idea of what you're doing. And that isn't sort of just my advice. That's actually built on the advice of a lot of, as I said, authors who've been around for a long time and had long careers as distinct from those who are just there for a short time. I actually think getting too much, and I've seen this happen so often, too much attention with a first or second or third book can be actually detrimental Mm. to having a longer career Mm. because the expectations are built too high, too early, when people still, as as an author, you still don't know what you're doing, (laughs) you know, and it's just so hard to meet those expectations, not just that are put on by other people, but that the author has for themselves. And they can become very uh, disillusioned very quickly and very uh, dejected. So, Look, that's fascinating. We're, we're starting to come to the end of our time together. So just let's turn to this thing about the podcast. It's the joys of binge reading. We always like to ask our guests what they're reading and if they are are or have ever been a binge reader and just to make a few recommendations for our listeners as to what would be good genre fiction to read right now. Oh, right. Well, I read, I've just finished or not finished, brought myself up to date with a series and I can't remember the author's name. I know the the covers. uh, Oh, it's The Slaughtered Lamb. Bar and it's a Sam Quinn. That's it. Sam Quinn series. Quinn series. Yes, and uh, that is that has been very interesting because it's. I, I do like some of the. I won't say they're quite young adult, but they're towards that. 
and they have, you know, like vampires and werewolves and all of this sort of stuff, um, not in a, so much in a romance as a alternate universe type thing. I'm always up with Devon Monk. She's one who has an, um, an alternate universe in Ordinary, a town called Ordinary. Uh, <laughs> so I do tend to read a lot of alternate universe type stuff and, of course, Faith Hunter. I read her a lot. And, again, I'm up to date with her. Who else? What I, what I also read is a lot of historical mysteries. Uh-huh. Um, for instance, C.J. Harris with oh, yes. that excellent series. Lovely Sebastian series, yeah. And I also read numerous others in that thing, going back to medieval. So, yeah, it's, it's sort of, uh, it's just always interested me, mysteries in or uh, I suppose they're more like crime-type stuff. So they're not just a general mystery. They're more a seeking of uh, justice. Yes, so, yes. Um, yeah. Your own books have an element of mystery, a lot of them, don't they? I mean, they're romances they with do. a mystery subplot, whereas the other ones That's are right. more mysteries with a romance subplot. That's it, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. right. But looking back down the tunnel of time, if there was one thing about your creative career that you'd change, what would it be? That I would change? Yeah. Is there anything? I mean, there might not be actually, but. Yeah, I'm not sure that there there actually is anything that I would change. Not really, no. I think it's all been very interesting and, you know, I'm very content with where it is now. So, yeah. Sort You're of, still traditionally published? No, no. You're self-published now. Published. That's yeah. right. I left traditional publishing deliberately some years ago and I've been very, very happy with how things have rolled on. Yes. In, uh, and I much prefer to be in charge of my own life. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, things changed so much in the publishing field, didn't they, in the kind of around about twi- 2009-10 that it became very much more practical for people to do indie publishing. Oh, yes, definitely. And Mm. by 2012 it was, you know, I was sort of saying, well, you know, time for me to start to find a way onward. But I stayed with, I was like a hybrid. I was um, self-publishing and also publishing through traditional publishers up until 2018, I think. Yes, so, yeah. you know, quite a long while. But now, nowadays, I'm wholly uh, self-published. You had the luxury of transitioning comfortably. <laughs> I did, and as I said, the transition went from 2012 to 2018. So yes. it wasn't all that fast. <laughs> yeah. Look, what's next for Stephanie, the author, looking ahead over the next twelve months? Okay, looking ahead over the next twelve months. Well, as I said, uh, you've got another. Is it two books in the line or? No, there's just what there's one, which is in July, and I'm dropping back to two releases a year now rather than the three I've been doing. That's simply sort of to balance life, as it were. Yes. Um, and so I've got, I'm writing, a, the book I'm writing at the moment will be released next year this time, March next year, uh, and that's still another Sinsters. I've got two more of that arm of the family to do. And after that, I suspect I will be going back to the Barnaby Adair mystery series 
and doing, there's a few more I want to do of their, their, them, maybe up to four. And then after that, I actually want to, and I mean, this we're now years ahead now, but I, I've always been well known for sort of having these, you know, very long-term aims. And uh, I really think I'm going to go back, oh, that I'm going to go forward, as it were, into the 1920s. Now, I've got an Adair spin-off, like, you know, from the Barnaby Adair mysteries leaping ahead uh, 60 years or more, more than that, to the 1920s to one of his descendants and one of his great friend Stokes also descendants and they come together again in a similar sort of series but set then. Yeah, it's different because moving forward you then have to take into account things like cars and telephones and stuff like that and, you know, telegraphs and Yes, it's, you know, you you have to change things a bit. Yes, I actually, it was when I was thinking about talking to you, I wondered about if you had a huge Bible to keep track of all of these characters. I mean, do you record absolutely all of their details like birth and death and and track all the relationships? I have all of that in each book as I go along. But what I don't have is a like a spreadsheet or something. A whole genealogy. You don't have ancestry.com. Yes. <laughs> I, I make up the yes, I make up the, the sister trees, for instance. They're made up and they're they're easily uh, found. But some of the others, and I must admit the thing that really, really, really throws me is when a reader has read one of my early books and asked me a question about a minor character. Yeah. And I ha- it takes me days to get my brain back into that book to find figure out who the hell are they talking about <laughs> and and what what were they what were they doing you know so yes that that is an issue that there's no way you can keep track of that many books worth of character you know it's over eighty it's mid eighties now yeah yeah. So, uh, yeah yes and Always also I, w- I would imagine also. There might be a little bit of peril in choosing names because I think we've all got names that we particularly like, and you suddenly think, "Oh my God, I had a I had a Cyril in book three or something. I can't use that one again." Yes, uh, there is that. I, I'm pretty lucky with the um, char- main characters' names, but I find that, like I just in the book I'm writing now, I just realised that oh, I've used the name Harold twice. No, I can't do that. So I had to go back and change one to Henry, which for for once I have not used in this book. <laughs> so, but the, the truth is that you know, in different time periods, again, like between the Regency and the Victorian era, they did have a habit of using, particularly for men, very you know, a very small number of first names. Yeah. So you know. Yeah. It's, you you sometimes are reaching a bit to find yeah. uh, unusual male names. Yeah. Especially when the first year was named after the father, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's mm. right. Mm. Or an uncle or something like that. And you have both of them in the same book and oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Look, I'm sure you love to interact with your readers. Where can they find you online? Actually, I don't do a lot of direct online anymore uh-huh. of course yeah. my Facebook yeah. page and we obviously online the website 
Yes. But we send out a, a newsletter yes. whenever there's any approaching release so people know about it. Other than that, I don't do a lot of direct stuff because, of course, that would eat into my writing time. Yes. And I long ago realised that what readers really want is the next book. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, for me, concentrating on writing the next book is more important than talking to a few individual readers. Yeah. You know, because that's really what, you know, when you've got a very big audience, that's what you're you're actually doing. If you're talking on those social media platforms, then you're actually not talking to your wider readership. Your wider readership is through the books. So, yeah. Yes. yes, that's great, Stephanie. Look, it's been wonderful talking. Thank you so much. And we will have the links to your books and website in the show notes for this episode, which will be there online forevermore. So you'll be, they'll be able to find you very easily. Thank you. It's been wonderful talking. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Next week on Binge Reading, we have Lynn Hightower, a New York Times best-selling author whose latest thriller, The Enlightenment Project, has been recommended by none other than author Lee Child of the Jack Reacher series fame. He's called it a spooky, suspenseful masterpiece that's super recommended. That's next week on The Joys of Binge Reading. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can be sure not to miss Lynn Hightower next week. And a reminder, we rely on your support to help keep us going. Check out Binge Reading on Patreon for entertaining bonus content. Until next time and happy reading.